Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning. We um, are going to finish out the book of Lamentations today. Something we've studied over the last number of weeks. We took one small break in there because uh, I just felt like some things were laid on my heart that I wanted to share last week. But we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up today. We're gonna wrap it up by talking about both chapter four and five today. And during the other weeks, we've actually only read a small amount of the scripture. We kind of pick and choose a little bit as we go through it. We're actually going to read the most scripture that we've read during this series today. Um, So we're going to start in chapter 4, and we're just going to jump right into it. So let's start with verse uh, 5 in chapter 4. Jeremiah the prophet is our author, and he is painting us a picture. So he says, Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. And I guess the thing I wanted to just mention there that Jeremiah is observing is that the prolonged agony of watching his beloved city and all of his beloved people be destroyed by the Babylonian Empire is far worse even though that many of them are still alive, they've been taken away, shipped off to Babylon, uh, even though many of them are still alive, he's saying that's far worse than what happened in Sodom, and Sodom was completely destroyed. There wasn't a person left alive at the end of it. And so that prolonged suffering is much worse in his mind. And agree or disagree, that's, that's totally up to you, but I thought it's worth pointing out that for Jeremiah, this prolonged suffering uh, his suffering and his people's suffering. Uh, it's, it's far worse. Uh, let's keep reading. We're going to read uh, verse 11 and, and quite actually a long section through verse 16. And the reason that I chose to read this long section is because it sort of tells the story. You know, we've said this whole time that Jeremiah is telling you his observations of Jerusalem falling of the the country of Judah uh, being torn apart by the Babylonian Empire. And and basically what I told you before was that they had just not listened to Jeremiah, who was the prophet, saying all these things need to change, and they didn't. Well, Jeremiah now sort of recounts uh, the story, and, and, and so I thought it'd be helpful for us to read that. So starting at verse 11, he says this, The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. And I'll leave it on the screen for you, but just, did you catch that? The kings of the earth and the peoples of the world, so the kings of Jerusalem and Judah, the the people who lived in it, they didn't believe that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. They just couldn't fathom an enemy that would be so strong that it could overcome this city of God, so to say. Verse 13, But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. So, again, we'll pause, and I'll leave it on the screen, but... 
Do you catch that? The people, the priests and prophets, the people who are supposed to be the the tether to God, the people who are um, supposed to be helping us know what God's calling us to, they're people who are actually doing the wrong thing. They are shedding the innocent blood of people within the city. They're making poor decisions that go directly against what God has called them to. This is a big part of the reason why Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, verse 14, now they, the prophets and the priests, uh, they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They're so defiled with blood that no one dares touch their garments. Go away, you unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. Now pause there, mid-verse, because can you think of a time in biblical history where um, you might have, have caught somebody using these same words, the same treatment of another group of people? Not, not wanting to be touched, um, get away, you're unclean. That sort of talk was reserved for lepers. And in this day and age, if you had leprosy, it was thought that you must have sinned in some way, shape, or form. The priests, the prophets, they are holy men. And so they would not be unclean. They would never have leprosy. And so suddenly the people who would never be unclean are being treated as though they are the, the scum of the earth, the most unclean. And the people who would have no power to determine who's clean and unclean, that would have been a priest's job, they're now determining that the priests are unclean. Verse 15, we'll just start there. Go away, you are unclean. People cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor. The elders, no favor. Okay, so I, what a picture. I mean, you're getting the history that, of Jeremiah's observations about what is happening to Jerusalem and to Judah. He has warned them time and time again. He loves the people. He loves the city. He warned them over and over, and they didn't listen. In fact, it got worse. It got so bad. The corruption was so deep that the very people that are supposed to be helping us know who God is and what God's will for us is, they're the ones shedding the blood of the innocent. And now those clean folk, those holy people, are the least holy and the most unclean. We're going to skip from here in chapter 4 all the way to verse five, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 19, and we're going to pick it up there and read again. Jeremiah says this, You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days of old. Now, one thing that I want to point out to you is that although Jeremiah feels like God has forsaken and forgotten them, we're going to see if we were to just check out the, the future of Jerusalem, what will happen? Has God completely forsaken them and forgotten his people? Of course not. Over the next 150 years, what you'll see is uh, refugee wave after refugee wave after actually return to Jerusalem and, and do various things. In fact, the final wave of uh, exiles that were in Babylon returning to Jerusalem is Nehemiah. And you might remember that Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And uh, so does God forget them? Absolutely not. God remembers them and begins to bring people back and, and begins to rebuild the temple and the city. And then, of course, the walls as well. God has not forsaken them or forgot them. We've said this before, but Lamentations, the idea of lamenting, uh, it's really 
like when we hurt physically, we cry out in pain, right? When we hurt religiously or spiritually, we cry out and lament. Lamentations, this book and the idea of lamenting, can really be described as a, a very loud, very religious, ouch, that hurts. And, and, and I think there's this silly idea that lamenting is a failure of faith, that when we complain or we're frustrated or when we're hurting and suffering that's, and we cry out that somehow we have failed in our faith. But it's actually, I believe, quite the opposite. It's actually a step in faith. We actually, we cry out directly to God because deep down we know that our relationship with God counts. Like God is the most powerful being and this is the place that we take our pain and our are lamenting. We take it directly to God, and it counts to God. It matters to God. The other truth of the matter is that when we're in pain and suffering, the feelings that we feel are extremely real, and, and those feelings don't go away if we don't recognize them and deal with them. My wife and I have shared our story in the loss of our children many times, but Part of that story sometimes doesn't get shared is that Carissa wanted to go and get counseling after we lost our first daughter, and I didn't. I struggled with the idea of going to see a counselor, and and I'd even tell her like, I support you. If you want to go, I'll I'll do whatever. It, we'll I'll pay for it. I'll drive you. I'll, whatever it takes, you go. But I don't I don't want to sit down and just talk to somebody. The problem was that when I didn't, I didn't get those feelings out. I didn't talk about them. I sort of buried them and they kept coming out in different ways and unhealthy ways and unhelpful ways. And my wife and I began to drift apart because we weren't grieving together. The feelings of suffering and pain are real. They're not fake. They don't go away unless we do something constructive with them. And often that sort of trauma pops up in destructive, destructive ways later lamenting, talking about it, shouting out to God, crying out, writing it down. These are constructive ways to deal with our pain and suffering. And maybe it's helpful if we couch it in, in, in really theological terms. We could say that the only way that we can really deal with this pain is to face it. We go through the death. And when we go through the death, we can actually come to new life and, and resurrection. I mean, that's that's the gospel message in a in a nutshell, isn't it? We don't run away; we run into, and we go through the pain and the hardness, and we become a new creation. Because what we find is that that God has actually lifted us up and provided us a Messiah in the midst of our pain and our difficulty. Now, here's the interesting thing. And I hope that this finds you well, and I hope that it sits in your spirit in a way that's helpful. But in many ways, our creativity as Christians begin with begins with grief. We we think we see uh, our eyes are open to a world that's gone wrong, and and we lament. We give a loud cry. Now think about even as we approach Easter. Think about our road, the road to the cross. You know, there's Good Friday. Jesus is arrested, and he's He's, he's beaten. He's, he's hung on a cross and killed. And we lament. We cry out. And in the silence of Saturday, as Jesus is in the grave, we don't know what to do. 
And even on Sunday morning, we have disciples who come to the, uh, to the tomb and they don't, they still are in grief and lamenting. And yet as they come to the tomb, as they get as close as they can to death, this is where the resurrection happens. Jesus comes out of the tomb. And, and so we say goodbye to the pain and the hardship and the, and the laments. We, we bury those things. We, we lay them at the foot of the cross. You see, as Christians, we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with Jesus, and because we grieve with Jesus, we make room for others to grieve. We, we can hope to be visited by the Comforter, the Spirit who breathed over all of creation even before it was formed. And that Spirit guides us in the choices that we have to make even on the hardest days that are ahead. And so when we recognize that our grief and our hope are intermixed, our creativity begins because we begin to see the world is in pain, the world is broken, and the solution is God's people. The solution for God's people is God. The solution for the world is God. And God's people are meant to bring God to the world. Think about the story of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is this guy that gets really sick. And, and these, these three people are, are brothers and sisters, and they mean so much to Jesus. There's a special relationship there. And when Lazarus gets really sick, um, he, they, Mary and Martha reach out. They send a messenger to Jesus and say, come back quickly because the one that you love is, is close to death. And Jesus doesn't get back in time. In fact, he, he purposely waits to get back until after Lazarus has passed away. And when he gets there, Martha sort of meets him at the door, if you would think of it that way. He comes into the household, and and uh, in John 11 is where we find this story. And Martha comes up to Jesus, and she says this. She goes, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And if you, if you look at the first thing that she says, it almost sounds like you might, you might think Martha is asking him, Jesus, to, to raise her brother from the dead. But clearly that's not what she's expecting because when Jesus says your brother will rise again, she says, yeah, when, when we all rise again on resurrection day. And so she's, she's lamenting. She's in that Saturday, that place of silence, the place of still mourning and, and, and not maybe, maybe she knows she has hope, you know, for resurrection day, but she doesn't realize that hope is staring her in the face until Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And, and it's sort of like a light turns on for, for her. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. It's like she sees him anew. She sees him with fresh eyes. She's reminded that her hope is in him, that, that perhaps life doesn't have to wait until resurrection day, but, but life is looking right in her eyes right now. And so they, they carry on through the household. They get close to the tomb. And, and, and Jesus has almost an identical conversation with her sister Mary as well. But when they get to the tomb, and you might know the story, Jesus says, take the stone away. And he calls into the tomb, Lazarus, wake up. Lazarus, come out. And behold, the dead man rises. The dead man walks out. I mean, when we see the suffering and the pain, 
sometimes that triggers us to go to our knees and go to Jesus. And that's the, the perfect and most appropriate place for us to go with our pain. Because we're having our eyes open to something through the suffering and pain that we're either observing in somebody close to us or even in our own lives, it begins to inspire hope and hope inspires creativity. This Sunday at church, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, another church, a church plant here in Pennsylvania with the Brethren in Christ denomination called the Holy District. It's in Allentown. And, and I can't wait to share more with you on Sunday, but uh, suffice it to say this, the lead pastor's name is Erica, and she and her husband came from across the other side of the country after praying and reading about a little town in Pennsylvania called Allentown, and they felt so called to this community of people. And so they picked up their lives, and they literally moved into the neighborhood. They rented an apartment in the worst part of the city, and they began to take their dog on walks and go out and meet people. And they met prostitutes and drug dealers. They met their neighbors. They had them back to their apartment for meals. They began to share life with people. And rather than judge them, they just loved them. They picked them up and carried them when they needed it. They cared for them when they needed it. They got involved in the city and all that's going on there. They began to be invited into rooms and meetings and sit down at tables with folks that in, in so many ways they had no business being at except that God continued to open all these doors for them to begin to sit in these places. And now, now, after a year, God has opened the door for them to have a building, essentially for free. The landlord came to them. The landlord is a non-believer, came to them to offer this building for their usage. And what they've begun to do is put together a community center with things like a library in it and classes to care for the community. Talking about a couple who, who looked at this little town in Pennsylvania and said, look, there's suffering here. There's pain here. There's hurt here. And that's where God calls us to be. And so in the midst of the pain and the suffering, we put our hope in God. We trust that he hasn't forsaken this place, this neighborhood, these people. We believe that God loves them as much as he ever did today. And so we will love them as much as God loves them right here, right now. And we will pour into them. We'll lift them up. Do you see how lament and suffering that causes lament and lament that causes us to cry out to God and God causes us to have hope and that hope brings us creativity? Do you see how all of this works together? My friends, I tell you all of this today because I hope that you are inspired by the Holy Spirit not to bury your feelings, not to sit on your suffering, but to use your voice to lament to cry out to God. And I pray that in your cries to God, God brings you hope. And that hope inspires you to be creative in the way that you respond. Yes, to the pain and suffering that you're going through. But yes, to the pain and suffering around you. I pray that your creativity, given to you by God, our creative creator, allows you to reach the world in new and incredible ways that the world may know God because the world knows you. Have a great Wednesday.
Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.